Now, normally this would be the part of the service where we'd have a second hymn, normally the sermon hymn, um, but I want to do things a little bit differently today based on uh, the lesson we're going to study. So we'll still sing a sermon song, but it'll actually be part of this lesson. Hopefully that'll make sense in just a few moments. Where I want to begin with the fact is that most of you are well aware of that halfway around the world, a war, a war is raging. It's in the newspapers, it's part of our politics, there's debate about how much money, weapons should they be sent. But what most of us, for the first time in our lifetime, are now facing is something unfamiliar. And that is that there's some madman who might simply unleash a nuclear weapon on this world and begin World War III. Most of us have not lived through anything like that. Uh, you're very well aware of inflation and what it's doing to the cost of living. And I'm sure you all, much like my family, are trying to find a way to make ends meet and to provide for our loved ones. What you may not be aware of, and I don't know if you've heard any of these news reports, but we're down to about a three-week supply of diesel fuel. Now, if we run a diesel fuel, you know what, how that's going to affect us. Uh, one, it's one of the major sources of home heating oil, especially in the Northeast. And there's a lot of people very concerned whether or not they're going to be able to heat their homes this winter. But worse than that, it's basically what our country runs on. If there's no diesel fuel, that means no semis running. And if there's no semis running, that means you're going to go to the store and there's a lot of things you're not going to be able to find. And so for the first time in most of our lives, we might be facing some true shortages I can't imagine standing in a soup line because, oh, maybe I could just simply put it, things have been mismanaged. Now, you all are aware of the COVID virus, and fortunately, most of the worst part of that seems to be behind us. And Frank, this is where you already stole one of my uh, thunders. It's this new RSV this virus, and for many, um, it's something completely new. Obviously, it affects children, at least that's what I've heard, more than it affects us adults. It seems like the immune system has, has been lowered because of just having gone through the COVID. So we have no idea how this or maybe any other illnesses are going to affect us as we move into the future. All we can do is ask God to protect us and trust that he will. The point I'm trying to make to you is, is that as we begin a new church year, and uh, we're one month ahead, if you will, of the calendar year, and we also begin with a new season of the church year, Advent, we have this opportunity to ask some hard questions. Hard questions of God and hard questions of ourselves. I wonder if maybe we as a society are not reaching a point, a critical point, if you will, where we simply are unprepared to deal with one more life challenge. Doesn't it feel to you sometimes like we wake up in this never-ending cycle of one piece of bad news after another? And so as we face this new church year, one of the realities is we have to admit there's a lot of uncertainty about our future. Despite the fact that we don't know what's going to happen, it's a beautiful reassurance to know that God does. And this year, and since Advent is one of those seasons, it's one of the shorter seasons of the church, your four Sundays, and I have a suspicion that many of you have uh, lived through ad many Advent seasons the way I have, um, I wanted to kind of shift our focus this year. Normally with Advent, we talk about one of the comings of Christ. That's what Adwenio means, to come. Uh, a lot of times it's pre-Christmas for us. We think about the first time Jesus came to this world, took on our flesh and blood to be our Savior. Uh, a, a secondary coming is when Jesus, in a sense, comes to us, understanding that he came to Jerusalem to pay for our sins, and three days later he rose to prove that those sins are all gone in God's eyes. And then, of course, the third uh, often focus of Advent is the 
promise that we're still waiting for Jesus to keep, and that's his second coming, to come again, to judge this world, to raise our dead bodies, to reunite them with their souls, and to take us off to heaven to live forever, face to face with God, something we await with eager anticipation. Now, the point I'm trying to make is, is God has made us some pretty big promises. If you stop to think about it and just go through Scripture, even in your own mind, there are some huge things that Almighty God has said to us. And unfortunately, we weak human beings, and because we're fighting with sin, a lot of those times we struggle to trust those promises. So this Advent season, our focus is going to be practicing trusting the promises of God. And we're going to practice trusting God's big promises by practicing trusting God's, dare I say, smaller promises. And the reason why I categorize them that way is because these four promises that we're going to study during Advent all deal with our earthly life, which should just be some small example of how much we can trust God when it comes to the beauty and blessings that he has in store for our eternal lives. Today we're going to deal with God's promise of courage. The next Sunday will be that God has promised not to let us fall. The third will be that God has promised to guide us. And the fourth will be that God has always, always promised to love us. So let's begin this new Advent series, this new church year. Let's with bold faith look at an uncertain future by trusting God will keep his word and give us this gift of courage. It rises up. It's from within. It comes from your heart. It can seem like the end of the road. It can feel like you can't move on. The mountains you face, the obstacles in your way, the heights you have to go, it makes you want to give up. It's too hard. It can't be done. But I am strong. And I give my power to those who are weak. To those whose strength is gone. When you trust in me, when you wait on me, when you come to me, your strength will be renewed. Your heart will be strong. You won't be tired. You won't be weary, you will be new. You will run. You won't grow faint. Courage, it's my promise to you. I know, pretty sobering video because that woman had no idea that her future held the death of her daughter 
or that she would now have to deal with those emotional baggage of trying to fill that gap in her life. But let's be honest, our day-to-day lives are no less serious or sober than what we just saw. And the reason why I say that is because we do all face an uncertainty. Uh, I have no idea what God has in store for you, but I can stand here with a smile on my face and tell you and assure you God does. And part of the reason why we can trust that is because God, through the prophet Isaiah, and that's why we didn't introduce the first Advent candle, because it really worked out well this year. The first candle, most of you might know as the prophet's candle, or it's also known as Isaiah's candle, because he is the second most quoted Old Testament source in the entire New Testament, second only to the Psalms. And so that's where we look today for God's promise of courage with this one verse. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And immediately you might go, wait a minute, Crowsey. I don't even see the word courage in there. So how can that be God's promise of courage? Well, patience, just work with me this morning because this is our uh, springboard lesson into this entire study and there's no other better place to start than with Isaiah. I think maybe the best way to dig into this lesson and so that has the most impact on our day-to-day lives is for us to simply break down this amazing way in which God records this lesson for us. And that means we have to dig into the book of Isaiah just a little bit. If you've ever done an in-depth study on the book of Isaiah, then you already know what I'm going to tell you But for the rest of us, there's benefit in understanding that in many ways, the book divides itself out into two books. In fact, I'm surprised that some of the early Bible editors didn't do a first Isaiah and second Isaiah, much like Kings, Chronicle, and Samuel. It would have made perfect sense. In fact, the last part of the book of Isaiah is so different than the first two-thirds of the book of Isaiah that some Bible scholars actually believe it was written by two different authors. Now, that's a mistake. We know that God inspired Isaiah to be the author of the entire 66 chapters. But it's an intriguing question. Why would people come away with this this conclusion that there's two books put together or two authors working side by side? And it has to do with the fact that the first part of Isaiah, uh, it's written in present time. Uh, And the second part is written about the future. And that might seem a little bit confusing because within the first part, there are discussions about the future. Let me break it down just a little bit further and give you two examples. Uh, In the second chunk of the first book, uh, especially chapter 7, and and I'm going to guess a bunch of you uh, were asked to memorize this, even as young children for your Christmas programs, there is the passage about the virgin birth, and that's a future event. That's a prophecy. So you might say, "Well, well, how does that work out then? You, you have to understand the context in which that prophecy is given. Isaiah was sent to King Ahaz, the king of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, who was in the process of making alliances with several strong nations. He was in fear of the Assyrians, the world power at the time, and so he was trying to shore up his own defenses, and he was going to do that through the very traditionally human way of relying on human power. God sends Isaiah and says, that's stupid. Don't do that. And he says, trust me instead, I've got this. Well, Ahaz was a very wicked king and he wasn't going to trust God. And in fact, he's so arrogant, he says to Isaiah, far be it from me to test God. And so God in response goes, Ahaz, you smart aleck. You know what, you won't ask for a sign, so I'm going to give you one. And it's this prophecy of the virgin birth. 
And basically what God says to uh, King Ahaz, if I can send Messiah to rescue the world, I can certainly control world powers to rescue the nation of Israel. That will be your sign. Of course, it wasn't fulfilled in Ahaz's life. It was fulfilled in the future, but it was given in the context of the present. The other example, let me just point to our Old Testament lesson. Uh, and it has to do with the king in Judah, Hezekiah, who was one of the good kings. In fact, he was a, such a godly king that God sent Isaiah to him to tell him to get his affairs in order. His uh, life was coming to an end. And it was on Isaiah's, or I'm sorry, Hezekiah's heart that he still had so much work he wanted to do with God's people and on behalf of God that he prayed that night that God would extend his life. And, and God did. He granted Hezekiah's prayer. It's one of those moments where Scripture says God changed the course of his planned actions and he extended Hezekiah's life by 15 years. But our Old Testament lesson shows one of Hezekiah's flaws because a delegation had come from the Babylonian kingdom, the uh, rising world power. And Hezekiah shows them around the palace. He shows all of his riches and beauty, and he fails at any point to give credit and glory to God. And so as a form of chastisement, I, uh, Isaiah was sent to Hezekiah and go, sometime in the future, this people are going to go into captivity. Not simply be Hezekiah because you failed to give thanks and praise to me, but because these people are stiff-necked and rebellious. It is talking about a future event, but in present time. So hopefully you can now get your head around how the first book of Isaiah works out. And in fact, what we have is the last few verses of the first book, and it leads us into the opening verses of the second book, the, the book about the future. And it's every bit as important as the first 39 chapters because Isaiah is sent to prophesy about such events like the Babylonian captivity. And God needed to assure his people not to lose heart, and that he was still very much trustworthy, and that he loved them, even though there might be days when it looked like he didn't. Because in reality, God had already planned for their restoration. After 70 years, uh, the Israelites were allowed to go home, and that they would be able to rebuild their land, their temple, and their homes, because they were the people of God. Messiah was coming from them. So for God to keep all of his big promises, God also had to keep his little promise. Now, I've already shared with you the end part of the transition from 39. These are the opening verses for chapter 40. I won't read them for you because this is now where our sermon song is going to come in. I'm going to ask you to actually sing those words in just a few moments. Before I do, though, I want to talk about this one line that I've highlighted, that she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. For a good chunk of my faith life, I had no clue what that was about. In fact, I thought, God says, you're going to treat me like this? Well, you're going to get it twice as bad. And if you don't carefully work through Isaiah, you can come away with some, uh, unfortunately, very human concepts. What God is actually saying is, is your time of suffering is over. Your time of uncertainty is behind you. Uh, I've taken the present and made it your past, and now I want you to look forward to the future. God is saying, I'm going to give you twice as much blessing and good for all of the trouble that you've had to endure. Unfortunately, because of your own foolish choices and your own rebellion against God. But God is truly a God of love and a God of promise. And it's in that light we're going to study our Advent lessons. At this point now, I'd like you all to join with me. We will sing the other part of the transition of Isaiah. Uh, speak to all Jerusalem. Speak to all Jerusalem. Of the peace that waits for them.
Tell them that their sins are covered, that their warfare now is over. Says our God, comfort those who sit in darkness, groaning from their sorrows alone.
words filled with hope and promise that set the tone for the second book of Isaiah, but singing that song there now will make the sermon feel like it's a lot shorter than it really is. All right, so we talked about book one. Let's talk about book two, which basically breaks down into three sections. The first section talks about the restoration of the nation of Judah. Remember the time of captivity, and God works world events so that the, uh, Xerxes becomes a world power, and God uh, compels him to grant release for the Jewish people, and they come home. The second section is filled with a prophecy about the coming Messiah and how all of these world events fall perfectly into place because of God's direction, and of course, you know from that section, we have some of the most uh, clear Old Testament prophecies. It's as if Isaiah is standing at the foot of the cross, describing word for word what he sees. And he doesn't do that by his own human vision, but because God inspires him to give hope to the people because Messiah was coming. And then the final section is really a section about us. And I don't know if you appreciate that about the book of Isaiah because it's really where the season that comes after Christmas Epiphany comes from. It's talking about offering amazing and beautiful light to a very dark and dying world. And specifically it talks about taking that message of love and hope out to the Gentile people. People, uh, of whom most of us certainly uh, would qualify. God says this isn't just for the nation of Judah, this is for the entire world. God is basically calling us back to the very first promise he ever made to mankind. I will put enmity, I'll put hatred between you, Satan, and this woman. I, I will uh, uh, cause division to happen between your, your two lines of offspring. He says, I'm going to sign one specifically uh, who you'll do damage to, you'll bruise him but he's going to crush your head. He's going to be victorious. That, in a nutshell, is the beauty of the book of Isaiah from which our first Advent lesson comes. And it's that first section about restoration that we have God reminding us that we can trust him. And he offers us, and I want to say this carefully, he offers us the opportunity and the ability to have courageous hearts. And I say it that way because sometimes I think we have a terrible misunderstanding how courage actually works. And to get it right, how we transition from the message for the nation of Judah to the message for us, well, in the same way that they made foolish decisions and walked away from God, there have been far too many times in our lives where we've done the exact same thing. And God says, I'm still going to keep my promise. I still love you. I still want you to know I'm with you, and I want you to know that you don't need to be afraid. How does that work out with this promise of courage? So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. We've talked about that word for fear before, yara. It's that unique Hebrew verb, and it's, it's got two specific meanings. And the one that we focused on a lot is to be in awe of God. To take a good hard look at who God is and what he does, his wisdom, his power, uh, his love, uh, and just our jaws have to hit the floor. Who is this God, this big God who would still choose to love us? It's awe-inspiring. But then this Yara word, if you flip it over, it, it can be the exact opposite. It means to tremble in fear. It means to be terrified. It takes us back to when sin became part of this world and the very first thing that Adam and Eve felt was they heard the voice or they heard the sound of God as he's walking in the garden of the cool of the day and they went and they hid because they were afraid. It's one of those words. It's like a coin. There's two sides to it and the context tells us how it is intended to be used. And in this sense, in a way, it, it kind of uses both. You see, the one side of the coin is the problem, uh, uh, being afraid. 
And, and I don't know if we've ever connected the dots, but the reason why we have fears in this life is because we have fear of God, afraidness of God. It was never intended to be that way. We were created to be in this perfect harmony. It was supposed to be like the perfect marriage, God and us, that there would never be a moment of contention, never a moment of misunderstanding or agreement. And sin destroyed all that. And so now we are afraid of God. And now that we're afraid of God, we're afraid of everything else that God has created. That's just the reality of what sin has done. That's the problem. Well, the other side of the coin, the other side of Yara is, is God says, I have the solution. And our human minds want to jump. Well, obviously, duh, the solution is courage. But that's not quite what God says. In fact, the word courage isn't not directly in this lesson. There's an allusion to it, but God says, I'm not just going to give you courage to solve your problem with fear. This is what I will give you. I am with you. I know we read passages like that in the Bible, in our home devotions. You go through, through phrases like that, and, and, and sometimes I, I know I, I'm over the top with the Hebrew and the grammar, but there's so much here. Just this one word, ani. It's the Hebrew personal pronoun, and that's God saying, I personally am with you. Not some concept of a fuzzy God, not some invisible unknown entity. I, the one true God, am with you. And then the obvious question must be asked, do I really have a reason to be afraid? I I wanted to find the best possible way to try and impress on you what this means. And the one that comes to mind for me is the episode with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's right after Israel rebels against God. They worship the full golden calf. Moses comes down. He's ticked. He destroys uh, the tablets of stone. And he's upset with them. Well, you think Moses is upset with them. God says, I'm going to destroy this people. He had every right to do so. He's the creator. He had just made a covenant with them. And in just a matter of a few days, they break that covenant. They, they couldn't have insulted God any more than they did. And Moses, the good shepherd that he is, is he intervenes and he says, do not destroy these people. And, and I love what Moses does. He holds God to his promise. He says, you promised to be with these people. You promised to make this nation the nation of Messiah. And you cannot go back on that. And, and it's a lesson for us that if we are fearful or we have doubts, that all we need to do is turn to the Lord and hold him to his promises and see if he won't keep them. That's what Moses does here. I hope this is a familiar section for you for two reasons. One is it was the lesson for the very first official uh, service that we had here on the Fort Campus. And the other reason is it's because it comes right before that episode where Moses says, now show me your glory. And of course, God says, I can't. No sinful human being can look at my face and live. So he finds that spot in the rock, puts him in there, puts his hand over, passes by, declares his name. Moses gets to see the backside of God's glory. That's as much as our sinful human eyes can see. And the reason why I cite this is because within this conversation, God is so ticked with the nation of Israel, he says, I'm not going to lead you people anymore. I'll send an angel to do it. I don't know if this is ringing a bell or not. And Moses objects. He says, if you're not going with us, don't tell us to go up from here. If you're not personally with us, God, do not ask us to make a single step forward, even though this is the journey to the promised land. If you are not personally by our side, then I don't want to move a single inch. God, gift us the heart like Moses so that we don't make one decision. We don't breathe one breath. We don't take one step without fully knowing and trusting that God is personally with us. And you know the old saying, with God on my side, there's nothing he can't do.
Now, so you understand, that's not all. There's a layer to this, and God has Isaiah offer a second layer, and it's with this word, do not be dismayed, uh, this word sha'ah. This is the almost perfect time to preach this lesson because it literally means the same thing that we've just been dealing with. It's when that stupid deer walks out in the middle of the road, stares at us, and has no clue what to do. Should I go this way? Should I go this way? Tell you what, I'm going to stand right here and destroy your vehicle. How does that work for you? That's what the word means, that you're so confused. And we even have that expression, a deer caught in the headlights. That's what Isaiah is saying. Don't be like a dumb deer standing there clueless as to what to do next. Why not? Because God says, I am your God. Now, I've gone on and on about the other name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the God who makes us a promise of salvation and delivers. This is the other Old Testament name, Elohim. And it's, a, it's every bit as important and beautiful as the Yahweh name, but in a different way. And the most basic way of understanding is it refers to the sovereign nature of God. And we don't throw the word sovereign around much, but uh, simply put, it's God exists independently of himself. He doesn't need any outside power, any outside wisdom. God doesn't need us. God is self-sufficient and could exist perfectly on his own and yet chose not to. It sounds a strange way to help you understand it, but within the language itself, it's a superlative. You have God, you have Godder, and then you have the goddess of all, which makes perfect sense because he is the only true God, so he is the ultimate of all gods. He is the goddess. This name is usually attached to the creation of the world, and it, and it is done so to help us try to get our, our heads around who this God is that promises to be with us. The biggest thing that we human beings know in a physical sense is the expanding universe. And in fact, physics and science still haven't figured out how this works, how it can keep growing and growing and growing. My theory is it was part of God's personal plan to begin with that as no human beings would have died, everything would have expanded, and there would always been provision because God's that smart and figures stuff out. And yet, this sovereign God is bigger than the universe that baffles and amazes us. You have to think of that. To the God who is the creator, this ever-expanding huge universe is teeny and tiny. This is the God who says, I am with you. So, of course, the question has to be asked, why would we ever be afraid? Well, we're sinful. We're human. We're like Judah. We take God for granted. We're so blessed. And yet we turn around and whine and complain to God that we need more because we have a different agenda than God has. And what God says is, I want to give you something to truly help you. And this is where we go to our gospel lesson. I couldn't think of a better example of how courage works. Because I think sometimes we ask God for courage and to take away our fears, and we have this assumption about how he's supposed to do this that doesn't match what Scripture teaches us. Certainly doesn't match how Isaiah speaks it to us. So how does courage work? Well, you know, I read the gospel lesson. They're out on the boat, fourth watch of the night. Uh, storm comes up. They don't know how to deal with this. Uh, they're basically looking death in the face. And here comes Jesus walking on top of the water, and they all freak out thinking it's a ghost, which I got a lot of questions to ask the disciples when I get to heaven. Some of the stuff they do just doesn't make sense. And I know I got the 2020 hindsight, but why on earth did they believe in ghosts? It just, it, yeah, okay, let me move on. Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's me. Take courage. 
That's how it works. That's how courage works. He doesn't just, well, this is what we think courage should be. God, I'm afraid I need courage, so give me a heart of courage. And we think, bam, God just makes our hearts, which were once weak and questioning, full with this lioness kind of uh, ability where all of a sudden, despite what we're looking at, we should be able to deal with it. Uh, you know, the old definition of courage is being afraid and doing it anyway. That's not really courage. Sometimes that's stupidity, to be honest. There's something beautiful about the sensation of fear when it keeps us away from harm or loss. God says, no, courage works differently than that. He identifies for us exactly how he fulfills this promise. And it has to do with the fact that first and foremost, Jesus identifies who he is. I'm Jesus. I'm God. I'm Messiah. I'm the one that is the end of the first big promise. Don't be afraid. Take courage. You see, it would have been easy enough for Jesus to just go, bam, storm's done. Or bam, the boat's not sinking anymore. But that would not have given them courage. It would have just taken the problem away. Oftentimes, God completes his promise of courage by giving us the opportunity to be courageous. And the only way that happens is to hear and heed his invitation to trust him. I think sometimes we forget how this episode ends. I don't know if you caught it, but Peter actually gets out of the boat and walks on water for a while. It's not because he was so brave and courageous. It's because he fixed his eyes on Jesus and trusted that he could walk on water. Jesus offered him the opportunity to be courageous. And when he sinks because he takes his eyes off Jesus, notice that Jesus doesn't criticize him because he's not brave enough. He doesn't go, where's your courage? He says, why did you doubt? Why did you have so little faith? That's how courage works. God offers us the opportunity to be courageous by simply inviting us to trust him and his promises. It's almost too easy. All we have to do is take our eyes off ourselves or the situation, the storm, and simply look at our Savior who has never failed to do a single thing that he has promised. And oftentimes he goes over and above what he tells us he's going to do and amazes us. In fact, this is such an important, crucial part of this first promise that Isaiah goes on, I will strengthen you and help you. This in some translations is translated as courage. And basically it could work. It's this ah mats word. And literally what it means is that God says, I will get inside your head and I'm going to clean out the cobwebs 
of fear. And the reason why I put up the form, it's appeal, because it is the most intensive verb form that you can get in the Hebrew language. God says, I'm not just going to maybe do this. Or if I have time, maybe I'll work on your brain. Or if maybe it fits into my schedule. God says, no, I'm going to make it priority number one, that I clear out of your mind the things that scare you and give you the opportunity to take my hand and trust me. In fact, he redoubles that with one more layer. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. No offense to you lefties, but the right hand in old times was considered the power hand. He says, I'm going to use that. And the word that he uses is basically, I'm going to wrap that around you. And I dare anybody to try and take you out of my grasp. Peter found that out the hard way when that strong right hand reached down and yanked him out of the water. What we find is, is that God promises us courage and offers us the chance to be courageous. But he says, you need to understand how I keep this promise. I'm not going to take all of your problems away. I'm going to ask you to trust me. I'm going to bless you with the faith to face whatever might come your way because you have no idea what that is, but I do. It's a beautiful thing which God has done for us, not only making us the big promises, but the quote-unquote little ones too. What I am proposing is that this Advent season, we work hard, that we practice, kind of like you did when you were a kid getting ready for the Christmas Eve play that you ran your lines, you did them over and over because nobody wanted to get up in front of a church full of people and look stupid or forget them. I'm going to ask us to practice these four little promises of God so that when it comes time to trust God for the big ones, we've got the spiritual muscles ready and that we genuinely do what Isaiah the prophet was sent to tell us to do, to trust in this big God who loves us so much that he not only offers to us the chance to be courageous, but with his gift of faith, gives us courage. Do you have the courage to act outwardly on what you see inwardly? Or will you die a dreamer? Will you die on the verge and on the edge and in the land of coulda, woulda, and shoulda? I'm, I'm going to drop something on you. It takes courage to be successful. It is far easier not to be successful. Misery will always have company. Success breeds contempt. If you don't want to make waves, be mediocre. Be normal and fit in. And if you're more concerned about people than you are God, then neutralize everything he put in you. Just fit in with everybody else. Dress like them, walk like them, act like them, eat like them, go where they go, think like they think, do what they do. And once you neutralize your uniqueness, you don't need courage. It takes courage to be different. It takes courage to be exceptional. It takes courage to be wise. It takes courage to be educated. It takes courage to be knowledgeable because the moment you do, but you, you don't talk like, you, oh, you don't got, forgot where you came from. Look at you, talk to you. It takes courage. And I'm just wondering, in this weak, watered-down, mediocre society that we live in today, in this reality TV world we live in today, I'm wondering if there's anybody left that's got the courage to say, after all I've been through, and all my ancestors have been through, and all my parents have been through, I didn't come through all of that just 
doesn't fit in with normalcy. I have the courage 